On this episode of Doctor Who's That, we talk about Eurometers, bad knives, and fire fingers. Hello and welcome to episode number one of Doctor Who's That, the show where I introduce a test subject, I mean friend, to Doctor Who, starting tonight with Serial One, An Unearthly Child. I am your resident Doctor Who expert, Sean Gleason. And uh, I'm your resident semi-Doctor Who expert, Andy Walker. And I am your resident neophyte newbie, Doctor Who watcher. Baird Johnson. And we have a couple of guests with us today. Julia, why don't you introduce yourself first? Hi, I'm Julia Zirwa. I went to college with Sean and Bay, and I am a visiting Doctor Who neophyte. I've seen one episode. I think it was part of the 2005-ish reboot, and I was very tired at the time that I watched it. I don't remember it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think we broke in, I mean, snuck into... an academic college and watched it. I thought it was okay. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. And our other guest is Park. I'm Park, and I am a fan of New Who and have mostly vague childhood memories of the original series with a couple episodes I'm familiar with, mostly from Tom Baker era. And this stuff is all very new and exciting to me. Well, thank you to both of you for joining us on our first episode. Now, before we get into things, I just want to say a uh, note about episode names. For most of the first three seasons, instead of having an overall name for each serial, each individual episode had its own episode title. So this led to some confusion when it came to what are we actually supposed to call the serial as a whole? For years, they were just kind of called by whatever. In 1973, the uh, Radio Times article started to call the serials by the name of the first episode of that serial, hence why this one is known as An Unearthly Child. Later on, in the reprint of a book called The Making of Doctor Who in 1976, they kind of used a combination of that first episode title. Sometimes they used production names, And sometimes they just gave a descriptive title to the story, like, hey, this is the story about the Censorites, so let's call it The Censorites. You didn't really get official names until about 1990, when the BBC started to release the episodes on VHS. And those are the names that we go by today. Now, for the purposes of this podcast, I've kind of cheated and gone with a few of the unofficial names for some of these serials, just to kind of not let the cat out of the bag as to what those episodes will be about. So you'll see that pop up from time to time. So some of you more experienced listeners, if you're wondering why I'm calling a serial by one title instead of the title it's better known as, it's for the suspense of the thing. 
So this one is typically known as an unearthly child, but it's also been called 100,000 BC, and it's also been called the tribe of gum, despite the fact that at no point in the serial is anything called the tribe of gum. I was wondering about that. Me too. Yeah, I only knew about this as the first serial, and it did seem like Unearthly Child was actually a, not a very descriptive. The second episode would be a better encapsulator if I had to pick one of them. It's pretty heavy metal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well. Yeah, I expected it to be a lot more unearthly, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of the titles for this one are pretty great. I mean, you have episode one, An Unearthly Child. Episode two, The Cave of Skulls. That would be a great title. Yeah. Episode three, The Forest of Fear. And episode four, The Fire Maker, which, I mean, that would be the most descriptive title for this serial, I guess. I mean, they serial, all sound I like, guess. you know, old Conan serials. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, some basic production information. This story was directed by Waris Hussein. It was written by Anthony Coburn, with the first episode being based on the original script by Bunny Weber. The music was done by a British composer named Norman Kay who did several of the early Doctor Who serials. A couple of important people, well, really only one super important person was involved with this, who we haven't talked about in our pilot episode, and that was the production assistant, Douglas Camfield. Camfield went on to direct quite a few Doctor Who stories throughout the next few years. And in this one, he did some of the pre-filmed scenes. Um, I'm not sure exactly which ones he did, but it's good to get his name out there because he's going to be super important later. As for the actors, in the case of this serial, pretty much all the actors, and for most serials, they're the regular group of BBC television actors, so I'm not really going to focus on them unless it's somebody super important who was in a ton of Doctor Who, or who went on to bigger and better things. So I guess the only things to really note here is that when they cast the cavemen for this episode, they specifically had the men open up their shirts and only cast men with really hairy chests. I <laughs> would have been such a shoe in. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, for once in my life, I, I could have made the casting call. There's, there are no cave twinks. <laughs> I, I saw that note, and when I, I went back and I watched a few scenes, I'm like, oh, my God, you're right. Like, even there, everybody, and the, the, their hair is just all wild and crazy. I highly encourage everybody to watch at home. These guys are great. Yeah. And really, you all should definitely watch along with us at home. I mentioned some places that you can do this. Whether you pay for BritBox or you look up the episodes on YouTube or Daily Motion, they're out there. So if you haven't seen these, most of them are worth watching. And there's also a story about one woman who ended up quitting when she saw her costume, and more specifically, when they told her that they had to black out her teeth. She was just like, nope, I'm gone. And she just left the set and never came back. So I guess the loincloth was fine. Yeah. And, you know, the speaking in like monosyllabic, that's perfectly fine. But teeth blackening, nah, she's done. Yeah, that's, it was, it was that's every... the one that broke her. It was every trope I expect from 60s portrayals of like neolithic yeah. you know yeah. cavemen it was very 60s i'm sure we'll get into that yeah so now let's let our uh, our test subject give a brief uh, synopsis of this episode what was this episode about bay 
Thanks, Shani. This four-part serial, An Unearthly Child, introduces us to our protagonists and sets the stage for the show as a whole. Barbara and Ian, two high school teachers, are concerned about an odd student of theirs whose name is Susan, who excels at science but is terrible at history. They follow Susan home, only to find her disappearing into a junkyard. The two follow on foot and run into the man Susan's identified as a grandfather, whom she's mentioned as a doctor. He's eccentric and unhelpful, and probing further, they stumble into a mysterious police call box they hear Susan calling out from. Going inside, they find it's a ship that can navigate through space and time that belongs to Susan and the Doctor. The four of them are accidentally whisked away in the ship, known as the TARDIS, to the year 100,000 BC, when they're taken captive by a tribe of cavemen involved in a political power struggle after the death of their patriarch, who made fire for the tribe. The son of this firemaker is named Zah. He cannot make fire and is being challenged by a hunter named Cal. Our protagonists are imprisoned in the tribe's cave of skulls until an old woman in the tribe, afraid of fire, agrees to let them go as long as they won't help Za. Za and the cave woman named Her chase through the jungle after the doctor, Susan, Ian, and Barbara. Za is attacked by a wild animal, and rather than escape, our heroes heal his wounds, to the astonishment of her. Back at the cave... Cal secretly kills the old woman after learning she let Za escape and riles up the tribe to follow the heroes to the TARDIS. Our heroes are stopped before they can escape, but the doctor realizes what Cal has done and turns the tribe against Cal. Everyone's taken back to the cave again, where Za is adamant the heroes make fire for him. They agree, teaching Za, but he refuses to let them go. Cal returns, and he and Za fight in a battle that ends with Cal's death. Susan devises a plan to get out of the Cave of Skulls, tricking the cavemen into thinking they've died and turned into ghosts. While the tribe is distracted, they make a run for the TARDIS, escaping in the nick of time. They fly into the unknown and arrive in the distant future, and the episode ends on a cliffhanger. Um, with It leads directly into the next serial, which uh, was kind of interesting to me. Yeah, that was kind of a thing that happened in the... Um in these early serials especially, where each episode would lead into the other, pretty much everything ends on a cliffhanger. How good the cliffhanger is can vary, but pretty much everything will end on a cliffhanger. And I kind of wish the modern show would go back to that. I, I, I like that. I may have things a little bit out of sequence because, I mean, these guys were getting taken to the Cave of Skulls and watched over and breaking free and going back and forth. There were several breakouts, if I remember. Well, I mean, they got a lot of mileage yeah. out of that Cave of Skulls set. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you're going to take a time to build a Cave of Skulls using, by the way, real bones that they got from a slaughterhouse that apparently no. smelled terrible yeah. under the, you know, oh extreme God. lighting of that studio. I take it the skulls yeah. themselves weren't real? As far as I know, they're not it was real. The 60s. I don't know. <laughs> I can't vouch for that. I but... was wondering that when they, when, they, when they put them on torches. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> at first, I thought they were paper mache skulls, and I was like, oh, no. Yeah, that's right. There's a little production value there. That skull's really holding up. Yeah, yeah. so I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to, for the sake of my sanity, I'm going to say <laughs> that they were, you know, just really good props. All the other bones, though, those were real. Yeah, I remember when the, the doctor's like, oh, it smells really bad. And I'm like, I bet it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
All right, so let's start talking about this uh, episode, and we'll start with um, you know episode one, clearly an unearthly child. So this episode opens with a police officer in the fog in what's become a pretty iconic shot. And an interesting thing about this particular shot is that it's a deliberate reference to a show that was called Dixon of Doc Green that opens oh. with this similar sort of shot. <laughs> I mean, they, yeah, the BBC, I mean, the, um, when they made this, they wanted to really give something that was familiar to the audience before ripping that all away when they go into the world of the fantastic. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I did not know that. I thought it was kind of cool because it starts out with um, that really futuristic introduction. You know, like you've, yeah. you've got your um, opening credit sequence, which looks like um, just a psychedelic Rorschach test. Yeah, and then it dissipates into fog, and you don't even know what you're looking at at first. It tracks through a junkyard. Although I I, I note that they hadn't invented the cold opening yet, because like the I, I was I remember thinking at that time like wow the theme music's really really hanging on there like it's uh, we've we've transitioned away from but nope nope there it's I really, still going I really okay the theme song. all right yeah that was really like my first reminder that oh I'm gonna be up here for I'm I'm getting ready for a slower paced. Yeah. television experience that they're going to play the entire like what was that two and a half minute yeah it was a long version like a full like the full version of the theme song which was great yeah and i like the way that you know it keeps going until i guess it sort of transitions into the hum of the tardis when you first see it and i think that's kind of great how you go from you know that policeman played by an actor named reg cranfield who is only real claim to fame is he's the first guy to show up on Doctor Who. Who looks very much like Michael Palin, but <laughs> that's just an aside. I was, I was like, Michael Palin's Doctor Who? All right, sorry. Yeah, but you go, you know, through him, see that mundane, and then as it goes over to the TARDIS, as that theme song goes to just that weird, unearthly hum, I think it really sets the uh, stage for what's to come. So I think that is a fantastic opening. Yeah, I, I really loved the theme song. Do we know what instrument they used? It was a, kind of all sorts of electronic instruments. It was not a synthesizer, actually. It was all really cut by hand. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading it that because um, I read about it um, once upon a time. Just like, how did they do that? And it was just all cobbled together. Like, there was no, there the were really synthesizers were in their infancy. And, yeah. Yeah, we talked about the woman who put it all together, Delia Darvishire, in the second part of our pilot. She was quite an amazing person when it comes, you know, she was just a musical genius. And, you know, she put together this amazing and enduring theme song. I always thought one of my favorite things about the, um, about the music that really fit with the tone of this episode. I mean, the episode, like you said, it it begins with this mundane reality, and then it's going to strip that away and show you kind of the weirdness that the characters are going to experience that's underneath that reality. And the song does that right away. It gets really super weird. And then it goes from being uh, sci-fi music to sort of adventure music at one point, which is one of my favorite things about the, the theme that, that the new who series also really brings out. I, it's like one of my favorite television themes. It's my, it's my, on my phone, uh, for like every alarm. 
Yes. So after we get through this just wonderful opening, we next go to Cole Hill School, where we see two teachers discussing one of their students, a girl named Susan, who they've really, they have no idea what to make of this girl. She's just, you know, they talk about some of these strange things that she does about how she seems to be a genius in some ways, just knowing science far beyond what the science teacher Ian knows, and then in other ways, getting historical facts completely confused, like thinking that Britain was on the decimal system for money in 1963, which didn't happen until 1971. I, I really do kind of love that that actually happened, though. Um, it's, it's a little bit jarring in um, science fiction when you know something didn't happen. <laughs> that, uh, or, you know, like events uh, kind of kind of change. Genix Wars of the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my memory was wiped. <laughs> yeah, my my only note from this this uh in this part of the the show that it was uh, they're establishing the hell out of how weird this girl is. <laughs> I just yeah, yeah. Well, and they do a really great job of showing instead of just telling. I mean, this is jumping forward a little bit, um, but we get multiple flashbacks later uh, to her being a, a total weirdo at school. Yeah, being a total weirdo who looks like she's just dripping buckets of sweat as everybody's trying <laughs> to figure out what to make of this strange, strange person. Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, my next note is, in fact, in all caps, loads of flashbacks. <laughs> yeah, I, and I that's not something you really ever see in Doctor Who. Um, I, I can't really recall too many other flashbacks being used beyond this episode. But the show starts messing with time immediately. Yeah. <laughs> I was also thinking about it because I was expecting something a little bit different from a show from the 1960s. It's really pretty modern. Um, there were a few strange things where I was like, okay, this I can definitely tell that we were making this in the 60s uh, or tighter camera angles than yeah. I expected. Yeah, but, I was going to um, mention that. That's very close, does... but not too bad. Yeah, well... The thing about that is Waris Hussein is actually a very skilled director. And he liked, you know, as you could probably tell watching this, he liked moving cameras. He liked those close camera shots, angles. I mean, so yeah, he, he was really a very, had a very modern mindset compared to a lot of the other directors who you'll see. Some of that is because the television screens at the time were so bad. Mm-hmm. that they really favored a lot of close-up shots because there was hardly, whenever an actor emotes, they tend to move the camera over to them, zoom in on them, or f- switch to a close-up just because if you stay in a long shot, you really can't see their expression that well yeah. on, on a 50s television set, which is what a lot of people were still watching on. True. Well, you know, that's, that's kind of an interesting um, note because I know a lot of the people who were considered for the... Uh, doctor started out on stage where you have to have these really big emotions uh, so the people in the audience can see. So maybe it was a little bit of jarring to move over to television. Yeah, that's also a possibility as well. I mean, at this point, television is still extremely theatrical. And the sets look like it too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So anyway, these teachers discussing Susan, they decide that they're going to follow Susan home to get some idea of what's up with this girl. And after, you know, they make this plan, we get our first glimpse of Susan. And, you know, there she is, just listening to music, dancing away. Really with music. Yeah, with the sweater that was actually, you know, a sweater that she personally owned. And her haircut that was personally done for her by famed hairdresser Vidal Sassoon. Nice. Oh, wow. (laughs) They brought him in and had had him do Susan's hair. She looks like the very picture of Maude. Like, I can yeah. totally believe that she picked out this, like, the character decided she was going to be the coolest looking early 60s teenager she could be. Yeah. And she's listening to some interesting music that was specifically made for this show by a band that they named John Smith and the Common Men, which is also interesting because the doctor uses John Smith as an alias a lot throughout the show. So I guess here is sort of the origin. You could say the origin is from the name of Susan's favorite band. Oh, that's kind of sweet, actually. Yeah, that's that's my headcanon anyway. I like that. I like that's my new headcanon now. Yeah, it might be a little awkward if they ever go and uh, visit the Powhatan Indians. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you all uh, make of Susan in her first appearance? Uh, now that I know that she blew the budget on her hair, I'm a little peeved. <laughs> no, I thought she was good. Yeah. Yeah, she's a little. Um, she's a little. She's her her volume. Uh, her acting volume is turned up a little bit more from most of the other people. <laughs> I'll say. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it's it's a good performance. It's just uh, I do feel like sometimes that. Uh, Maybe they were going for like the whole uh, crazy teenager thing or whatever, trying to separate her. Because for all I know, she was like forty or whatever when they filmed it. But yeah, like, she was twenty three. Okay, so it was. But I can, you know, it's definitely you watching it. You're like, this isn't a little okay. All right, well, she's yeah. just doing her thing. Yep. <laughs> well, I actually, when I was watching this, I was surprised because she takes a very central role. In the first episode, but then in the following ones, uh, I think she really kind of fades into the background a little bit more. And uh, we get a lot more time um, with Barbara and Ian, I think. Yeah, that's definitely the case. But I have some... Well, I'll go ahead and say it now. Later on, when we eventually get into the TARDIS, it kind of feels to me that's where this mystery and focus on Susan, uh, this mystery of Susan and the focus on Susan ends. And we begin the wider mystery of just what is this? Mm-hmm. Right. So, it, yeah, from, from the title, it sounds like the unearthly child is herself the mystery. Yeah, like you're implying, yeah. but she's not really the main point of it. I am. Um, I really liked how the teachers, uh, Barbara and Ian, they, they discussed their motivations for snooping rather than it being like obviously a good idea or obviously a bad idea. You could tell that they were a little hesitant about this possible invasion into her privacy, but at the same time, they had a variety of reasons to do so. So that that helped me not get frustrated with them. Yeah, I like how Ian just flat out admits yeah, most of this is because we're curious, and Barbara's kind of like, 
Nah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I was uh, really relieved that they actually, you know, addressed the elephant in the room because they go on talking about this for a while. And then I can't remember who flat out says it, but they're like, this is a little weird, right? You know, this is creepy that we're, we're. Yeah. I really appreciated that, uh, that Ian kind of dismissed, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, I, I know what you really want to know because you're curious. This is really an interesting, weird thing. And we both want to know what's up. That's the real reason. It's not like there's some concern in there. But we don't actually think she's in trouble so much as we really want to know. And like you said, like they dealt with that. Yeah, so that that was definitely, you know, a plus. That... Very, yeah, it was very nuanced. They didn't have to. Like was, yeah, the first thing that endeared me to this and was much better than I expected. Because I feel like a lot of shows, even modern shows, but also shows that are old, wouldn't necessarily have had that much nuance. Yeah, exactly. So they follow her to the junkyard. They see her enter, and, you know, they decide, okay, we've gone this far, we better go in. Barbara admits that she's feeling a little frightened, intuitively saying, like, we're about to interfere in something best left alone. So they go into the junkyard after Susan, and that's where they first meet her grandfather. Let's talk about this first meeting with, um with the doctor when he first enters. Can I just say that um, mm-hmm. having not seen any of the classic episodes at all and, and not really being familiar with the first doctor at all, um, I, 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 I loved him. Uh, I thought he was, uh, even back here, like he's odd. He's got an arch smile. He's very doctor-like, even from the first kind of few moments. Um, I, I was really struck by that. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, like with what you were talking about, he seems he he does come across as the doctor we know. In a lot of other ways, though, I mean, he's very, very different from the doctor from what the doctor would become. It it was strange because I mean, like he showed up and I immediately knew he was the doctor, but that also went ahead with some preconceived notions I had about how he was going to act. I'm like, wow, he's being kind of a unhelpful. <laughs> yeah. And, and let's face it. Racist. He's being kind of a jerk. <laughs> yeah. Racism with his wonderful line about the red Indian and their savage mind. Ah, I was, the red, the red man looking at a locomotive. Yes. Or... <laughs> I got, I, my, I, I noted down here. I was like, wow, we made it a surprisingly long time before somebody said something racist. And then he, <laughs> He says Red Indian. I'm like, well, okay, that's not so great. But he's, then he says Savage Mind. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's pretty racist. <laughs> yeah, but it's Britain in the 60s. I mean, Red Indian's not great, but like, you yeah. know, like I, I, at the time, you know, I was like, okay, well, that's not so good. But, oh, uh, yeah, okay, Savage, that's, that's okay. Yeah, and I think I alluded to this in our pilot. If you think that bit of racism was bad, there there's more coming up later. So, oh boy, yeah. Can I say what, one thing about what really intrigued me about how much time they spend on the mystery of Susan and how much time they spend establishing that how different she is and how mysterious she is, and also I I know she was playing it up a lot, but also demonstrating real acting skill and I don't know the, the way, well, the way they built up her character 
really made me reconsider what I'd heard about the show, that the show was originally designed to be at least semi-educational. They were going to trade back and forth, you know, sometimes educational and sometimes action-adventure. It made me wonder if their hearts were ever really in that for real, because (laughs) here they have a chance to actually do an educational show, and they didn't at all. And they begin with very much, very science fiction-y feel, not a very, like, dry feel at all it's very heightened suspense and a lot of character focus it's not the kind of thing i'm used to when i recall like the sort of the children's television from my youth in the 80s and early 90s that was clearly trying to be educational but trying to make you think it wasn't educational and how poor they were at doing that yeah i mean it's you know yeah it's interesting that the first bit of an educational journey into history is to a time period we really have no knowledge of. Right. (laughs) It's also, we start off in a school so they can kind of like tick that box. Okay. You know, uh, we, we were in a school. It's, it's educational, right? Two of them are teachers. Okay. Let's get off to the science fiction. Yep. (laughs) I, I, I got the impression that this is very much like a, you know, uh, this episode was like something you can point to in a boardroom and be like, no, 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 it's educational. It's very, but it's like, it's very much like a, um, like a, like a Smithsonian, like an old Smithsonian, like caveman diorama understanding of that period in history, you know? Right, right. Yeah. yeah I mean, the, the few things that they knew in the sixties, I think they, I mean, there, you know, we had some anthropology going on, obviously already. I can imagine an anthropologist at the time would have scoffed at this. Yeah. Probably. I'm sure. But since um, we did mention the very science fiction-y feel, let's start getting into that science fiction when we finally enter into the TARDIS, when the teachers just get tired of the doctor pretending he has no idea who Susan is, when they could clearly hear her, and they just barge past him and into the TARDIS. Can I say one more thing about Susan Um, Mm -hmm. and about education and schools and stuff why is susan in school (laughs) like if she knows all this stuff in school already or most of it like why is she in school like going to school when you already know everything sounds super boring why would she not choose to learn other things i think for her she's like this is like taking a summer job at like (laughs) old world wisconsin yeah you know she's she's enjoying it's like a this is like a field trip Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe she's interested in this time period. Maybe she just wants to hang out with people her age. Assuming that she actually is 15 years old. For all we know, she might be, you know, 100. (laughs) So maybe maybe the the best way to figure out how people of 20th century Britain think, like, anthropology-wise, is to embed herself in a society of people her own age and try to blend in. (laughs) Yeah. So I'll be interested in to find mo- find out more of her motivation and personality. It, it's uh, interesting that um, she she seemed more scientific because it, it, the way we're talking about her, it's like she's an anthropologist herself studying the 1960s by going to school. Yeah. <laughs> the reason I think she is a teenager is that she reacts to the situations going on like a teenager would. Especially like a, like an adult would write a teenager. I mean, and this goes back to we're trying to get in the TARDIS. The way that she reacts to them being in the TARDIS. If she was older and had been through situations like this before, she would have 
not called out to them from the TARDIS or once she was there, like she was very emotional. She seems to be written like how an adult would write an emotional teenager. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Before we totally move on from Susan, I, I also wanted to say as a Doctor Who newbie, I was surprised when it was announced that there's someone related to him. I thought he was like the last of his kind or something. I'm well, assuming that was a, a story that they told to keep everything plausible rather than actual reality. Yeah, well, that whole last of his kind thing that that's not a thing in the classic series. That's something that's um, in the modern series. But but are we to believe that uh, she is? Well, I mean, it's called an unearthly child. I wasn't sure if that was referring to her or the doctor. I guess it could be to either. But I, I assumed it was Susan. Yeah, I think that's a safe assumption. I they they say I can't recall what the exact dialogue is, but there's something like that kind of like that said about Susan about when they're going over her weirdness I wish I could recall there was a quote there was it wasn't it wasn't those words but they they said similar things about her about how she was a strange child yeah a lot of it I think with the focus on how strange Susan is the title is definitely referring to her I had heard too I, I again this is like a, going back this far is all new for me I, I I have never watched this early before but I had heard that in the beginning it wasn't set at first whether or not he was going to be an alien and they did make it seem like he invented the TARDIS because she says that she named it which later I I assume they they're at some point they're going to retcon that but it, they don't it, retcon it so much as flat out ignore it. Oh uh, well that's that's the <laughs> <Yeah>. British <laughs> that's the yeah. British science fiction way. Uh, yeah. They um she did make it seem like for sure, they the two of them were from another. They were both from another planet together, from what he and she said, and they were exiles from that planet. That they were born on another world from another time. Possibly, I think at one point they they clarified that they were definitely aliens. Though I thought at first it could have been maybe future humans on a different planet. But I think at one point they definitely say they're a different species. Yeah, I don't remember if they explicitly state that, but I think that's definitely implied. Yeah. Yeah, it's made pretty clear that they're they've been exiled from their home planet and you would kind of assume that they would say we've been exiled from our time otherwise. Yeah. yeah. It seemed to be hmm. both. It seemed to be both another time and the both the future and somewhere off in outer space. Well, we're starting to dance a little bit around the TARDIS, so we should probably go into the next part where uh he imprisons them. Yeah. <laughs> basically. Where, you know, he they enter the TARDIS and he's just like, nope, you're not going out and kind of taunts them. <laughs> and, you know, Susan starts, you know, asking him, please let them go. And he's just like, I can't. They'll tell people about us. He gets a lot of amusement out of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He that, se- which, and that did seem very doctor. That seemed familiar to me. Yeah, I, it's kind of very doctor, if you consider that, you know, the real jerky side of the doctor anyways. Right, yeah. <laughs> that, that was surprisingly apparent. I did not expect him to be that much of a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's That surprised me, too, actually. I, I found him, you're probably not going to like this, I found him the least likable of the characters during this uh, oh, I mean, part definitely. series. Well, I feel like yeah. that was pretty intentional. <laughs> yeah. He, he is definitely... Fairly unlikable, 
during this story. I mean, let's get down to it. He locks these people in. And then once his granddaughter threatens, you know, I don't want to leave this period. I'd rather leave you. That's when he's just like, okay, fine, I'll let them go. And then he activates the machine. He just kidnaps these two people. <laughs> well, I, so I got the impression that he was, at, first he, at one point he said, fine, you go too, get out. And she was like, no, no, wait. And then I thought he was going to sort of mess with the dials, but maybe not do anything. And then she ran forward and tried to counter what he maybe or maybe was not going to do. And that's why the TARDIS went all wonky and he had no control over where they were going. I, it's a possibility. I'm, I'm not sure. It's kind of left vague. But I think that's another one of my headcanon things where, you know, he's so desperate to make sure at this point that Susan doesn't leave him that he's just going to say, fine, we're going. Say goodbye to this time period you love. Wow. <laughs> He really comes across more as a mad scientist. A lot of the sort of classic megalomaniacal, almost, I wouldn't say sociopathic, and I wouldn't diagnose a fictional character, but cold and detached. On, so, on, a, on a side note, I think it would be a lot of fun to just kind of stumble around while the lights flash and act like you're, you know, traveling <laughs> through time. <laughs> yeah, in an extremely extended psychedelic-esque scene that we never see anything like again. <laughs> Which is good because we don't need another, you know, four minute scene of them stumbling around while the opening visuals play in the foreground with them kind of behind them. It's kind of a weird looking image. Can I just say I really like the, the TARDIS, by the way. I was pretty impressed with how what they the amount of effort they put into the texturing and everything yeah. like uh, and what a shock. I was I found myself thinking like what a shock that must have been to viewers to see. Uh, you know, yeah. for that transition. And the way that it's shot when they enter into the TARDIS and, you know, it just goes out, shows the whole thing. I mean, that it is a really beautifully shot scene. They go from the most disorderly environment imaginable to the most orderly environment imaginable. Yeah, to this just they go from that, you know, horrible common junkyard to this pristine futuristic what even is this help i'm locked in the apple store yeah <laughs> <laughs> it did look like a proto apple store which makes him seem all the more a genius he seems like the wizard who is making this kind of order out of this kind of chaos yeah and it made him seem especially the way he was you know so self-importantly prancing around made him seem very high and mighty so i think we should move on to caveman times when the TARDIS lands in a barren landscape, we end this episode on that nice cliffhanger where we see the TARDIS and we just see a shadow coming towards it, which turns out to be one of these cavemen. I, I thought it was kind of painterly. I, I liked it. Yeah, that, I mean, I, that's just a great shot. So we go on, we get to meet these cavemen where we see the whole tribe and we get another great camera shot with the camera panning across this kind of bored-looking tribe as they're just watching Zod there, rubbing sticks together, trying to make fire. Which I loved, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I really like, because I, 
man, I, I remember <laughs> I was thinking to myself, this is actually pretty, this is really good because he's really selling me on the fact that he has no clue how to make fire whatsoever. He's kind of seen it. He's seen people like, he saw his father make it a few times, but like he knows that there's a stick involved, sorta, and there's things that you throw <laughs> in, sorta, but he's no, he has no clue. And, I, and, and he did a really good job, you know, selling me on that. Yeah, and meanwhile, you have old mother in the background kind of heckling him and, you know, talking about how it's better to just live like we've always done and forget about this newfangled fire thing. <coughs> Metaphor. <coughs> Heavy-handed. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is oh, yeah. immediately what this arc is about. Yeah, I mean, this whole thing is just, it's a metaphor for technology and in a lot of ways for the sort of nuclear technology kind of thing that we're, we'd be seeing in the 1960s. Well, but also you know, like fi- knowledge and ignorance. Yeah, knowledge, ignorance. This is a serial that's filled with metaphors, filled with symbolism, and it's, it's definitely a very well-written episode or well-written serial. Let's use the correct terminology. It definitely took me a second because I'm used to imagining fire as more sort of sacred knowledge. And it was really weird to see, oh, so like the old kind of magic woman is down on fire? That seems a strange sort of thing. And then instead I, I realized, oh, I see, this is actually supposed to be representing new technology. And, and she's the regressive force. Yep, she's the regressive force, you know. Some of these people prefer somebody like the other caveman, Cal, who goes out and who hunts Cal. for food, rather than Za, who sits around all day rubbing his hands together trying to make fire. Although Za freaks out really well, I have to say. Yeah. That's another note I had there. I was like, Za wow, gets really angry out. when he can't make fire. <laughs> yeah, I, I did like how frustrated he was getting. Like, like Andy said, he was really selling it. Just like slamming his fists down on this pile of sticks. Yeah. <laughs> so after we see our cavemen, we go back to the TARDIS crew, where Barbara begins to believe, yeah, we've gone somewhere and asked, where are we? And Ian's just, like, making fun of the doctor, ridiculing him, like, we haven't gone anywhere. This is ridiculous. And the doctor's just laughing right back at him because he knows he's right. And it begins all this wonderful bickering between the doctor and Ian throughout this whole serial. They're kind of like a toned-down version of Za and Cal, where, you know... (laughs) (laughs) That's a nice parallel. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a parallel between those two. Except, you know, in the end, Ian admits, yes, the Doctor is our leader, while Zai and Cal just get into a fight, and one of them ends up dead. I was so. really surprised a couple of times the Doctor handed off authority to Ian, which is not at all like the Doctor I'm used to in the new series, that he made sure they got Ian free first at one point, and that at one point there was, you know, you're... You're gonna have to. You're the you're the strongest one. You're gonna have to fight if we have to have someone fight. And that was yeah, just which was the point weird. of letting Ian go free first. But yeah, it's definitely weird considering when we get into extreme pacifist doctor later on. Both both the idea of having someone else stand between him and danger, and the idea of preparing for a fight, spoiling for a fight maybe at all. I wanted to call out real quick. Uh, 
Eurometer. I just really wanted to mention yeah. that there was a Eurometer. Yeah, I was going to mention I'm that sorry, too. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, just, I got into my, I have it in my notes. Says it just zero. says Eurometer and then <laughs> laughing, you know? Yeah. Like, not even Eurometer, but Eurometer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then, of course, you have them calling the doctor, Dr. Foreman. And here we have our first instance of somebody saying, eh, Doctor Who? Yes. Take a drink. Oh, they said it so many times in a row. Yeah. I mean, you know, the doctor name checks the show. A little bit later, Ian name checks the show. Yeah. I was... So I don't know. Do we have to have a Doctor Who counter? Yeah, I think, I think <laughs> I mean, that's probably. I mean, we're at two right now. Yeah, yeah, I was. I found. I was like, okay, how many times are they going to say this early on? I mean, like they're maybe they're just like imprinting it, they're hammering it in early on so that we get an idea. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'll be interested. I think we should uh, definitely like uh, get a little you know ding in there. Yeah, so let's see. Let's let's see if we remember to keep count of this. We should like insert a little ding. Yeah, you know? I think I think it, I think ding. it behooves us for a ding. I want to say something about Ian and Barbara and their kind of their budding relationship and their place on the show because Ian sometimes seemed rather um, and you know so what I expect from 60s television a little paternalistic a little misogynistic and the show portrays women as being either conniving there's sort of a Lady Macbeth character and then there's the old woman who's the anti-progress character Uh, at the same time though Ian is better than Barbara at kind of keeping it together Yeah, I mean, you have both Barbara and Susan screaming and crying a lot, and one of them gets a lot better. Well, at the the same time, Ian is not, like, Barbara takes in the reality of time travel like that. I mean, it's super, she's like, oh, okay, so this is totally really a spaceship and a time ship, I really believe them. We are now in a new a new time. I totally understand. I not understand, but I believe what's going on. Yeah. I am ready to deal with this situation. And Ian's like, someone's got to help me stand up. Yeah, uh, I can't handle what's <laughs> Ian, going on. Ian is ready on. to faint as they're leaving the TARDIS. <laughs> Susan, he has to lean on Susan, and I yeah. thought that was really interesting. That though he was Mister Science, perhaps because he's Mister Science, he was also rigid and had a hard time dealing with you know a shift in reality. Yeah. I, well, I and Susan call out, just. Oh, sorry. N- oh no, no, no! I just wanted to. Uh, there was a line that happens right around here that I thought was awesome, where he says, um, "You know, uh, the doctor's talking to Ian, and he says, if you could touch the alien sand and hear the cries of strange birds and watch them wheel in another sky, would that satisfy you?'" I was like, "That's poetic. That's that good. was awesome." Yeah, there are a lot of poetic lines, and that's definitely one one of the most memorable of them. I mean, even the cavemen, when they're not doing cavemen <laughs> grunting and stuff, they have some pretty poetic lines in there. And when they do go to leave the TARDIS, I don't know, like Susan just kind of throws on her jacket and it's like, I'm going out for a Sunday stroll. Yep. <laughs> I, you know, she's <laughs> I've done this before. this point. I mean, you know, and then they go outside and both the doctor and Susan are a little bit confused when they look back and see the TARDIS is still a police box. I, yeah, it's kind of interesting that we never see it in any other state. Budget. <clears throat> no, I mean, I know yeah. I know why, you know, yeah. from a, um, what do you say, Doylesian perspective, but... Yeah, but they explained it away as, eh, some, some circuit must be yeah, broken. It's busted, yeah. Yep, it's busted, oh well. It, it, it might be easier to actually have it be able to 
to change form because then you wouldn't have to lug around a phone box whenever you have to do location stuff or move studios. You could just take any prop you want. Location stuff? What's that? Oh, There's okay, well, in the fair enough, fair enough. Although, stuff. I did <laughs> that would not be an issue right now. <laughs> but even, even if you have to move to different studios or construct different sets and yeah. transport it in, you wouldn't have to do that if you just could have it be like any door, any yeah. lamp or anything could just be the TARDIS. Here's our lamp. Let's enter our lamp. Yeah, it but then you can't have people. Yeah. <laughs> I was really impressed. Like, aside from that, you know, I mean, the budgetary concerns, uh, you know, which I think are in, in their own way a source of creativity. Um, I was impressed with what the other things that they did with it, because visually, for the most part, uh, and orally, like AU, like vis-a-vis sound, it was it looked and felt pretty good for the period. And they set the stage with a couple of notable exceptions, which I will get to when they happen. Um, I thought it sounded and looked pretty good. Well, you do get that weird dissonance and humor of seeing a police call box, this kind of standard city thing, obviously not anymore, but at the time, be in these weird locations. I mean, that must have been part of the attraction of doing that. Yeah, I mean, that that is pretty neat when you just see this random blue box, or I guess black and white box now, <laughs> since we're not in the color era yet. But you just see this random box in the middle of an alien landscape. Did it seem a little contrived to anybody else that the doctor went off and, and pulled out a pipe? I'm going to go over here and, uh, you know, get captured. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the only time we ever see him smoking a pipe. So, you know, he pretty much pulls out a pipe so a caveman can see him and be like, this man breathes fire. <laughs> he's got, he's fire got came those, from his fingertips. Yeah, he's got yes. those, those solar hands. I mean, he was an old yeah, British man terribly. in the 60s. Didn't yeah, it didn't seem terribly contrived to me, not knowing that he doesn't smoke a pipe after this episode. You know, you get out, you don't want to smoke in the TARDIS because it's in a closed, well, it was the 60s, okay, maybe they smoked in enclosed spaces then, but, you know, you go outside, you've just been dealing with annoying people, you want to smoke Well, the TARDIS isn't particularly enclosed, considering that it's gigantic on the inside. Something I don't think we mentioned earlier. But. Well, you don't, you don't want to smoke in the control room. That's, a, yeah. that's not a good place to have. I do recall uh, when one of my professors, uh, who was an, an older fellow, recalled when he was a student in college and banned smoking inside on campus, which is how mm. far back he went, and how many of the professors at the time like rebelled at it. Like, what do I do with my hands if I can't pack <laughs> my pipe while I'm speaking and having a lecture? Uh, so it... it didn't strike me as weird, but now to hear that the doctor never smokes a pipe again. And I mean, maybe maybe it's just coming from, you know, the the aughts or the, the teens or whatever, you know, where it's pretty rare to see people smoking at all anymore. Yeah, may, maybe in most of the, the times that the doctor has been recently, smoking a pipe has not really been a thing. And so he hasn't had it as a habit, but then he picked it up in the 20th century. And that was sort of his last hurrah. He used to vape. maybe that's maybe you know that's how he got off the pipe who knows but anyway the dr jules yes (laughs) (laughs) but anyway the smoking the pipe gets the doctor kidnapped he gets brought to the cave people and Hal insists that the doctor makes fire for them and you know the doctor at this point he doesn't care he's just like yeah, sure, I'll make fire. I just want to get free. I don't care how it's going to mess up with history or your society or whatever. Just, you know, I'll make some fire, set me free, except 
Oops, left my matches. This had this actually made me question, did they ever say for certain that they were on Earth? No, they no. did not. Because I did wonder at that point, wait, maybe they're in another time and place. Maybe they're not in Stone Age Europe. Maybe they're elsewhere, and that's why he doesn't care about like the timeline. Yeah, I mean, that's some certainly something that has been suggested. But at this point, based on things that we see later from him, I kind of think it's just the doctor looking out for good old number one. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> notice he, they did only Does... reference the Eurometer, not the Spaceometer. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> for, for being concerned about looking out for number one, I would have expected that after thousands or however many years of time traveling and other kinds of travel, maybe, he would have mastered basic negotiation with humans, at least. And yeah. I feel like he did a terrible job of convincing them on terms that they could understand to let him go back to the ship for matches. He like basically didn't even try or was really bad at it. I, I was going to say, like, uh, he almost doesn't get very much of a chance because the other three burst in pretty soon. Yeah. My notes on this one there are uh, Savage Susan Catches the Blood Rage. Because, man, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, was really just, impressed with that. I wrote down, Susan does a crazy scream leak a, leap attack on Cal. I was really <laughs> impressed with her. She's, just, She's like, just, you know, beating in. up Cal and screaming. It's crazy. Get I just, off my grandpa. I just imagine yeah. this is like her big acting break. And she's like, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was it? I want to say, uh, I have not seen it, but I know it's very famous. This is her second known gig. Her first one not long before this was she was in Day of the Triffids. Yeah, and she also had a guest spot on a TV show called Z Cars, or I guess it's, it's British Z Cars. Oh. But I feel silly saying <laughs> Zed. See, I was, I, I was thinking you were going to say Reefer Madness because that was definitely some Reefer Madness. <laughs> that, that, that was a little bit too, uh, too early for, for her. I think that, that probably came out before she was born. But anyway, the TARDIS crew gets overwhelmed and they decide, you know, the old woman wants to kill them right away, but Za wants to sacrifice them to their sun god, Orb, and decides, let's put them in the Cave of Skulls. <laughs> I tried to say that all dramatic. Who knows how that came out? <laughs> I like it. Yeah. One of the, my um, favorite... Oh, no, so please. It, it occurred to me that... Everyone can understand each other. So it's not just Doctor Who who can understand the cavemen, which I might have chalked up to some sort of, you know, babblefish ability or at the very least having just learned languages the slow way. But, you know, Ian and, and all the rest of them can talk to the cavemen and back and forth. So is this some sort of thing that the TARDIS gives them perhaps when it transports them or That's is there the any the explanation show. ever? Yeah, they said I, they, I wondered they about that, that too. Yeah, they give that as the reason eventually. I want to say that it might not be until like 14 seasons in or something <laughs> yeah. crazy like that, that they actually decide to give an explanation for that. But that is the ultimate explanation, that it's sort of the gift of the TARDIS. I, I almost asked you if we ever hear foreign languages in the show, but I don't want to spoil myself. So I'll just, I'll wait. But one of the things I really enjoyed from this scene was um, I don't know what to call him um, the you know the former the great leader 
the the father of um... oh the 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 father-in-law yeah i right. believe the fa- that father of the macbeth woman yeah, yeah the father of the girl the girl of course her name is her her but oh, i believe that her father was named horg okay well horg Horg showed a little bit, at least what looked to me like he was a little progressive, a little bit of like feminism there. He's like, I don't know if I want my wife to be in any kind of polygamy, you know, like she should be number one, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> I want to say about about the uh, the old woman. Is her character name is just old woman? Uh, old mother is old what mother. she's credited as. She's the only other actress that's not a regular that I actually have seen before she has a really long career and i had to look up where i'd seen her before but she in the there's a movie called the vikings with tony curtis and kirk douglas that's if you've ever watched the tv show vikings the movie vikings is about the same people in a wildly different kind of adaptation of the same saga and she plays the the sort of mother figure to uh a Viking child who's been raised with the English, played by Tony Curtis, and she's really good. Like I, I really, I was really her. impressed with her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought she was a really strong actress. I, and... I think that pretty much all of our named characters, I, they, they were all pretty strong, given that they had to work with being cave people. And I mean, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but I was really sad to see her go. Actually, I thought. Um, she was one of the, the cave people that I wanted more time with. Well, my, my theory is Britain only has 85 actors. And if you watch, <laughs> if you watch uh, BBC and like Harry Potter, uh, you'll just see them all. They, they only have so many. It's not a very big island. And, you know, they, they, they all do double duty. They all, they all, for real, they did come across like seasoned professional studio actors. You know, who were maybe not necessarily the best cave people, but knew how to emote character, knew how to portray personality, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're they're all good. Quick, guys, they're doing an, a period piece next door. thousand <laughs> <laughs> BC. Yeah. So they get tied up in the cave of skulls. And they try to, you know, Ian tries to start cutting himself free with stones. And we begin to see, you know, the doctor using some of his brains to get them out of this situation where he tells them, why not use bone? It'll be a little bit sharper. We also see the doctor apologize to them for getting them into this situation, which is, I think, the first time we see the doctor show some signs of decency. Yeah. I thought that was uh, that was pretty interesting, like um, because you know in a lot of shows, especially in the early days of television, it was very you know it was archetype heavy, right? And you know your your um, arrogant old man was pretty much just an arrogant old man. But really quickly here, he starts to say, oh, "Yeah, you know, my bad." I was going to say it's a nice bit of growth for him. I mean, the, he is directly responsible for this. Yeah, and we get a nice scene between him and Barbara where he you know, begins to comfort her, and he says some great lines about fear-making companions of them all, and, yeah. about, and about just, you know, along with fear comes hope. That was a line I wrote down. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the key lines of this episode. That seemed to be like, that was a little piece of the doctor as I knew the doctor. Yeah, I mean, nope, that. I right think there. that scene right there 
is the first time where we really get this is the doc, you know, coming from a modern viewer, this is the first time where we really see the doctor as we get to know the doctor. And of course, first mention of the word companions, which of course becomes, you know, fan and show lexicon, at least fan lexicon. Along the theme of fear, just a little bit later, uh, when they're running through the forest, the doctor stubbornly denies the possibility that the bush is moving might be because of an animal. Because he, quote-unquote, refused to let himself be frightened out of his wits. Which is interesting that he's just ignoring this possibility because he wants to psychologically protect himself and, you know, keep himself together. Which, you know, that, that could be fair, but it's not too different from how Ian refused to believe that the TARDIS could travel through space or time. Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely, I think, see a lot of similarities between Ian and the Doctor as well. As you know, the, as I mentioned before, the relationship between Ian and the Doctor and Za and Cal. Yeah. But you know, they're both people who really want to stay focused and kind of block out things that don't really fit into their idea of what the world is. That's also it's, it's, yeah, it's another example of the men in the party not wanting to deal with reality because reality is unsettling, and the women in the party going, "Oh, this is what's going on." Even, yeah. Even even the the, uh, the the cave people have the same kind of situation. You know, Za. Okay, on the one hand, yeah, he wants to Za and Cal both understand that kind of fire is the way we have to deal with uh fire but they both kind of let their their desires for what is reality really shape their understanding as opposed to taking things as they are whereas both the women on the one hand yeah the uh, her the sort of conniving character and the old woman who is anti-fire but they both have a really clear understanding of what's going on what they might have to do to make what they want happen and they have to guide the men to do so because the men are really action, but not not very contemplative in and in, in recognizing reality and dealing with it. Yeah, and here we see, you know, those two particular women you just mentioned kind of guide the action when old mother goes in and frees the doctor and his people so that they could go away and not give them fire. While her notices this and brings Za along because she's worried that the old woman is going to, she thinks she's going to kill the doctor and his people and to make sure that they can't get fire. I'd also like to just uh, get a little tick here on the Susan freaking out counter. Uh, she does a really great job when the old mother shows up. <laughs> Susan is very good at freaking out. I was really surprised... <laughs> And this other sort of like doctor not being the doctor when uh, Za is injured because Za the Za then chases them and Za gets injured by the animal after a great Barbara freak out where right. they come across a dead animal and she just starts screaming. I I just have that all in caps actually. As a matter of fact, Barbara Bore freak out. I was really yeah. impressed. <laughs> the, the 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 checkoff of early Doctor Who. Ian has to make the doctor be helpful. Ian has yeah. to make the doctor help an injured person and bring him back to the TARDIS to help him. And that was so weird. That both that both that the doctor had to be talked into being um, helpful and kind. And that again, once the choice of what to do was made, he was, you know, he was not only not making the choice, but then not taking control when it happened. Yeah, and I mean, you know, he flat out refused to help. And of course, there's the question of what exactly was the doctor going to do with that rock that he picked up? I, 
Right, right. I mean, was he just going to flat out murder Za? <laughs> I mean, it seemed pretty clear. Like, uh, you know, uh, the denial was, I was not convinced. And from such a great actor, you know, it's pretty clear that they told him, hey, you you weren't really going to draw a map, right? You're lying here. So, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think it's interesting because I, I felt, I, wrote, I was noted down here that it feels like they're kind of, they haven't really, they're kind of orbiting around what the doctor is going to become because he clearly doesn't give a toss about these, you know, I, I believe he says savages. As a matter of fact, yeah. like you say, he just refuses to help. Yeah, I mean, once again, it's the doctor looking out for the doctor, and he's just like, you know, what's most expedient? What's the best way to make sure that, you know, the tribe isn't going to come up behind them and attack them? Just get rid of this guy, and let's keep on moving toward well, the I TARDIS. remember thinking that, you know, he he was a jerk earlier, but I would be really surprised if he ended up killing anybody <laughs> And then there he was, just moments away from murder. At this point, there's one thing I, I wanted to note right here. So I remember earlier when I said that with one exception, they did a really great job on the audio. This was that exception. And they had this like this same like looping um, animal sound over and over again. I called it squeaky rat. <laughs> uh, it wouldn't have been so bad except for the fact that it was it was really screechy. And like it drove my cat completely insane. <laughs> Just over, and it was just like it was maybe like a five to ten second loop, and it's just after a while you're like, oh my god, how many rats are in the past? They're <laughs> rodents of unusual size. <laughs> so they end up helping Za after he's attacked by this animal, despite the doctor's best efforts, and Za and her are just absolutely baffled by this. They, you know, don't understand why these people would be helping them. It just doesn't compute in their caveman minds, I guess. This is another one of those things that, like, I didn't understand how... I mean, whatever, the 60s portrayal of, of you know, um, Paleolithic people, but... I guess because really, they don't have fire yet. But they're always dirty. They always... Like, like generally, I, I would think that the most successful hunters and gatherers would probably live near water. And uh, they're not eating a lot of sugar, so tooth decay is probably not going to be the the biggest problem. But they're always dirty with blacked out teeth. Well, yep. as, this, as the son of two dentists, I can tell you, uh, tooth decay will find you. It's true, true. <laughs> but I would think that um, it would be especially hard. Just like I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine there are a lot of asthmatics. Well, I tell you, I mean, well, they're, speaking of asthmatics, we do have, a, but I won't get ahead of myself. Um, I, I guess I, I was a little disappointed that like they're trying to show that like altruism is some sort of like modern trait. Like, I mean, of course, sure. In yeah, the past, exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. In the past, lives were nasty, brutish and short to, you know, steal a phrase. But like, I, I'm certain that, you know, even even from an early age, like um, we are familiar with the concepts of, you know, people that are bad to us or people that are nice to us. And I, I just it seemed odd to me that like. Somebody who wouldn't just immediately kill someone would be that alien to them. I actually had a different take on that. I um I didn't see it as them saying that gentleness was a modern trait, so much as that it was primarily known as a motherly trait back then. Um, that's how they described it. And I'm a new mother myself. My baby, whom you can probably hear in the background here, is five months old. And um, I can say that there's definitely a very primal urge to guard and protect as a mother, like they were doing. 
And some people say that the world would be different or more peaceful if women were in charge. And I think that might be so, but I think it would be even more different if mothers specifically were in charge of certain things. Because I feel like, personally, I'm a much different woman as a mother than I was before. When I became a mother, I just got gentleness in spades. I was like, whoa, so <laughs> profound. <laughs> That, that kind of goes along with with the the difference we see that you have we see the again I just blanked on his name but the father of the bride Porg does, you know thank you yes is looking out for his daughter and the old woman is looking out for she is kind of a mother of the tribe and even yeah. though she may not have the best grasp of what needs to happen uh, next in terms of the usefulness of fire she does have a sense of what is dangerous about fire and also is looking out for everybody that's a very she is good doing point. her best to protect everybody. And of course, trying to protect, comes. yeah, trying to protect everybody gets her flat out murdered by Cal. Yeah. And that's another counter that we should keep. How many people die in Doctor <laughs> Who? No, no, we have the, <laughs> well, one so far, but saved... I mean, we'll eventually end up having Cal. I guess two. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I was also going to say it. it's a little strange, though, why even have a tribe if every time somebody is in trouble or hurt or dying, <laughs> you just off them? You know, like, it would it would cause people to be loners. So I thought that that was a, a little weird for people who are in a successful tribe. It's a good point. Well, I mean, it is a little weird for them to kill it. I mean, Cal just killed her because he oh, wanted to frame it on Zah. I'm so surprised that... These newcomers would oh, maybe yeah, it's because they were mercy. newcomers and not part of the tribe. They just don't trust anybody that's not part of the tribe. Yeah, I think it was I think it was kindness being shown to someone who wasn't a member of the tribe, which again is something that the old woman does. She could have killed them, but instead she wants to set them free. They were seemingly like really friendly to Cal when he first showed up for reasons unknown. Yeah. Well, he's uh, yeah, yeah, it's true. He's he was an outsider. I think the partly meat. also this is they're showing how unstable things are yeah like without, the, a le- without a real leader like the doctor says that you know these people just change their minds as rapidly as night and day yeah so their motives can't really be trusted because their motives can but, change I mean, I with a snap that was of the finger also a, a interesting commentary because they're a lot more id like whereas you see higher level kind of reasoning with our, our protagonists. I mean, they are, they're more evolved. It occurred to me to ask, what is the series saying by depicting early humans like this? And so, yeah, that hum- humans are capricious insofar, at least, as modern humans are like early humans. Our minds do change as rapidly as night as day. So I think that's one thing that it's saying about humans in general, and that, that we lie with narratives, like the, the rock that showed what it did. Well, I mean, the doctor is has been like a vehicle for them to look at humanity from the outside in a lot of cases. I mean, that's pretty much what they use him for throughout the yeah. entire series. That's a really good question. Usually when I see, especially science fiction shows, depict early man, the message is either, look how far we've come, or we're not so different, you and I. Yes. And this seemed to be 
I thought at first, okay, the, the point is going to be the Doctor is as far beyond us as we are beyond oh. these people. Interesting. Um, I thought that was it was going to be setting up kind of a, 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 a spectrum where they're all the way on one side and the Doctor's all the way in the middle and or on the other side and we're in the middle. And in the end, I actually got the impression that no, it's that people in the center that is right. Where the, our, our morality is correct. And the doctor has something to learn from us in much the same way as the cave people have something to learn from us. Like in terms of, of being, you know, kind and of rational thought, it really, it, I, this goes to the ending. I don't want to, am I, oh, yeah. I can't get I too mean, far, but, but it's, it's Susan and Ian who figure out how to yeah. get out of the mess. And I mean, I, that going back to that scene where the doctor almost murders a guy, I mean, I think that is one of the most essential scenes in all of Doctor Who, because that's kind of, I think, the moment when the Doctor learns humanity. Yeah. That, you know, humanity stops the Doctor from doing something awful. And I think my headcanon says that the Doctor remembers this, and it's a big reason why he keeps traveling with humans for the rest of his life because they will stop him if he goes too far. I like that because I don't think the other, so the other bits I've seen of Gallifrey, both the episodes I recall from the Tom Baker years and also from New Who, most Gallifreyans, most Time Lords wouldn't have stopped or let themselves be stopped. Oh yeah, I think ahead, the doctor hit the guy with a rock and gone back to their ship. Yeah, I think the doctor that we see here is pretty much what a normal person from his planet is like. Let's not call it Gallifrey just yet, because that name doesn't come about for another 10 years. Oh, wow. But oh, wow. I th- yeah. <laughs> but I think that this, you know, when we do see his people later on, they're kind of jerks. Yeah. <laughs> they're yeah. kind of massive jerks. And the doctor that we see in this episode is a lot like what we see of his people in future episodes. When he picked up the rock, one of the things that I was thinking about was like, oh man, like Rick and Morty's kind of a ripoff, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there are so, so many original. versions of this. Wow. Did you all, did anyone watch a show called Voyagers in the 80s? It was Voyagers exclamation mark. It was about a, uh, a time traveler and his little kid sidekick companion. And the time traveler was like a future time agent whose job it was to go throughout history and make sure history did what it was supposed to do, make sure things went right. Is sort of a Sam Beckett character. And uh, he lost his history book. And so instead he picks up this kid who's a whiz at history, who just knows <laughs> history really well. And he uses this kid essentially as history book. He's like, hey, hey, Marco Polo, what happens here? And the kid has to tell him and he has to make sure that happens. I didn't think it run. I don't think it ran for very long, but like uh, this is the early '80s, like a, like a season or two. Wow, that sounds pretty neat. And I hope it's they good. named the kid Book, or at least he just referred to the kid as Book. Hey, Book, <laughs> get over here. So anyway, we should probably move on. You know, they run through the forest back to the TARDIS, and they find that the TARDIS second is time. surrounded it's by the cavemen. Time that they do that. Yep. Yeah. So they end up. Back in the cave of skulls. <laughs> I didn't but, see that coming. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of, you know, a pattern in Doctor Who. Get captured, escape, end up back captured, and so on. 
when they get captured, Cal tries to convince the tribe that, you know, Za killed the old woman. But here we see some of that cunning that the doctor is known for, where he, tr- where he hilariously tricks Cal into pretty much <laughs> admitting he's a murderer. They're not when he, bright. They're not yeah, bright. That was clever, he, yeah. Yeah, it's great. He points out that Zaz's knife has no blood on it, and Cal says the amazing line, this is a bad knife. It does not show the things it shows. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I actually really enjoyed that. And yeah. My notes here are, uh, uh, are, Cal is no good at cross-examination. <laughs> Doctor has created lawyers, question mark? This is, we have to remember, hundreds of thousands of years before Matlock. Right. Yeah. So, like, that's what I was like, oh, my God, are, this, is, are they, are they allude to the doctor create lawyers? Like, is that... Yeah. So, you know, the doctor convinces Cal this is a good knife. And Cal's just like, no, my knife is better. See? See how good my blood-soaked <laughs> knife is? <laughs> you know, I really appreciated that their knives looked like Paleolithic knives. Like yeah. they were, they were like sort of turtle shell shaped cutting implements. They were not like a like a stone knife. Like if someone tried to chip a, a modern knife shape out of stone, I just I thought that was nice. The doctor didn't only invent lawyers; he also invented like public shunning, stoning, driving people out of town on a rail. <laughs> yeah, he invented stoning, where he's just like, "Hey, everybody, Cal's a bad leader. He'll kill you all. So let's just stone this guy." I thought it was also another moment where maybe this is another time the doctor learns about humanity. Because then he makes a deal with Za and tells the people, like, listen, we're, this is the deal. We're going to give Za what he wants. We're going to teach Za how to make fire. And then Za is going to let us go. And they sort of have that understanding. And then, of course, he does that. And Za's like, yeah, yeah, you better stay here. I think I'm going to need you to stay here in the Cave of Skulls. Yeah, because, you know, yeah. not only does he get fire from, well, specifically Ian, But Ian also gives him a great word of wisdom. After they drive out Cal, he tells Za, remember, Cal is not stronger than the whole tribe. Yeah. So here they are. They they invent the concept of community. And looking at this whole episode, it just kind of makes me wonder, did the doctor traveling back to to caveman times, if this was indeed Earth, did he create humanity in a way by, you know, teaching them fire, teaching them community? Did, teach, they, make, you know. they, did they make community or did they just make kings paranoid? Yeah. yeah there, there's two sides to community. You know, they, communities can accomplish a lot, but communities can also, well, drive people out sometimes unjustly. I think well, in this case, very justly. Well, yes, this case, <laughs> justly. But, but, you know, they, they also ostracized the doctor and his companions. I think that one other thing that maybe the show is demonstrating is that one thing humans do is we compete for power and we ostracize scapegoats, justly or not. And that that brought to mind something that the recently late philosopher René Girard talks about, how we, we desire and we compete for the same thing. In this case, that's fire, leadership, respect, power, mm-hmm. and that divides our society. But then we... We unite society by all of us turning on a scapegoat that we blame for our problems. We exile that scapegoat, even if they didn't have anything to do with the original desire we're competing over. And that Mm -hmm. shared experience brings us together again. So Gerard talks about how 
Christianity actually exposes the tragedy of this pattern and turns it on its head by having Christ be the scapegoat, having us all start to identify with that scapegoat, the exile, rather than mindlessly taking part in the mob. Um, So like by now in Western culture, sort of, that attention to the humanity of the victim is kind of ingrained. We do still have, we do now have a tendency to root for the underdog. And that's kind of remarkable historically. You don't see the cavemen doing that. But we still, despite that, rooting for the underdog, still fall into the pattern of scapegoating people like all the time. So there's like countless examples in history from the Nazis to modern politics to like high school social dynamics. So I thought it was really plausible and notable that the, the series here depicts this tendency going all the way back to early humans, whether or not that's something that maybe the doctor uh, catalyzed for them. I think that was partially a, a call, again, for leadership. It reminded me, I've, I've been reading a lot of um, Umberto Eco and his notes on the encroachment of fascism for some weird reason. And he talks about how easy it is to create scapegoats and how that tends to happen in power vacuums, how when there is a lack of faith in truth and what is true mm-hmm. and a lack of faith in common understanding of truth and the truth, that's one of the times that bad leadership can step in or a lack of, you know, a power vacuum can create opportunity for scapegoating. And that's something that we have here. We have essentially bad leader or no leader going on. And that's when the it's easy for the passions of the tribe to be turned on people. Yeah, Man, exactly. your guys' notes are a lot more sophisticated than mine. I just have <laughs> Zal, Zah, Cal fight, not too bad. And <laughs> and I, ha ha ha! Somebody laughed because of the smoke or coughed because of the smoke. Like, you remember when they started the fire? You know, it's like, yeah. oh look, we have fire. <laughs> look, there's, there's fire. <clears throat> I, I that was that there. was an acting choice, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so speaking of, you know, you mentioned that Cal fight after they get put back in the cave of skulls after they make fire. And after Za tells them, nah, you're staying with us. We need you guys. Cal shows up and Cal and Za get into a pretty nicely choreographed fight. And if it looked like that fight took place in a much larger space than everything (laughs) else, it did. Because they decided that the studio that they normally filmed in was just, you know, with all the fire around, was way too dangerous to shoot this fight scene in. So they actually pre-filmed that at a different location. And the stunt work there was coordinated by a guy named Derek Ware, who did a lot of stunt work for the BBC and for Doctor Who up until the early 70s. And he was actually the stunt coordinator on movies like Willow and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. So Derek Ware was a pretty big name in the stunt world. I mean, he did a good job. I have to say like uh like so actually to be uh, to be absolutely honest, my note originally said, well, I as I was typing it, saw Cal fight. I've seen better fights from Kirk, but then I remember, oh, then I like about halfway through I just backspace backspace backspace. <laughs> Not too bad, you know. Yeah. Uh, can I I did want to ask a question though. So like 
okay, they've got fire now. They gave they gave Zah fire. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, they must be about to wrap it up. And then, like, nope, and then he's going to keep him there for a while. And I was, did, like, did, I don't know where you covered this, but did it have to be, like, exactly 25 minutes long or something? Because it just, it seemed like that, from that part out, they just kind of like, okay, well, we got to, yeah. we got that fire point done, and now we got to. That, that surprised me, too, because, like, Zah and Cal are, I, I had something in my note about, like, Za is not necessarily a better leader than Cal. You know, like, he's just as dumb and impulsive as Cal is. I, that fight is made kind of difficult to follow in some ways because they look pretty similar. Yeah. Uh, and they're, like, scuffling around, and I, I think it's intentional. You know, like, Ian and the Doctor are kind of shadows of one another the same way that Cal and Zah are. I was going to say he's not a murderer, but he did sort of, I mean, he did kill, yeah. but he, the instances in which they kill are very different. He does kill another adult who is a threat to his group and Cal killed an old woman. Yeah. I mean, you know, Zah does brain Cal with a giant rock, but it was in the midst of a fight while with the old woman, Cal just flat out murders her because it helps him. It allows him to turn the tribe against Za. Yeah, he would, he both murdered and was plotting on to frame somebody else for his crime. Yeah, so neither caveman is particularly somebody who you want to identify with, but Cal is definitely the worst of the two, just based on the actions we see from him. No, I mean, there's no question about it. Cal is conniving, but Za also... Zai is you know, just—he's not hilarious. a great guy. He's not a great guy. <laughs> no, I, I just mean to say they basically blow all of their leverage by making fire for him. And I—I I was also going to say when you're talking about Ian giving them a sense of of community, with the Cal is not stronger than the whole tribe. He really kind of like reinforces how far humanity does come by saying in our tribe the fire maker is the least important because we can all make fire. You know, like knowledge will free you from this tribalism yeah. in a way well, i thought he was saying something there too about leadership that because we are all individuals who are not this is a british person talking they have a monarch but he, he, we are all we are all somewhat in charge of our own destinies that the leader is supposed to be you know maybe, this, maybe i was thinking more of this as an american but the leader is supposed to be one of the group the leader is you know first first among equals the leader is meant to be a servant and that is something whether it's british or american that is something else that's baked into christianity that the governments have as an ideal even if not in practice uh, the leader is meant to be in service of the people and so in in, in a way the fire maker in terms of the leader is supposed to be least among us and because we are all somewhat in charge and when i was watching this i i interpreted the fire as knowledge and knowledge being power on the entire tribe kind of guard that knowledge and make it only one of the tribe can actually make fire and this kind of gives them leverage over everyone else you really actualize humanity by everyone having the same knowledge or access to the same knowledge technology is power yeah well not all yeah technology knowledge I definitely thought that's what they were getting at, but I, I remember uh, thinking at the time, it's like you could have phrased that a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it, I don't know if it works so well in terms of technology because in terms of technology, we still live in a society very much where 
whoever has the most control over the technology does have the most power. They're not the least among us at all. And if you look at the doctor as an example of this, clearly here the doctor has a handle on technology that nobody else around him does. And as a consequence, he can do whatever he wants. I really hope that um, insofar as the analogy of technology to nuclear power was intentional, that they're not implying that everyone should have nuclear technology, because I think that could turn out badly. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope that's not the implication here. I'm going to guess yeah. in the 60s, <laughs> I, Britain, it was not. Probably not. I, good, I, in, I interpreted it a little bit more like the whole reason that they're in the power struggle situation that they're in is because they hoarded knowledge and they didn't make it free to everyone. I see, I see. And they can mitigate these problems for their own community by by sharing knowledge yeah, and power. I wonder how much fire was supposed to be a connection to their sun god, Orb. My guess is probably they were worshiping Orb before they invented fire, but you know, the sun is made of fire. So mm -hmm. I wonder if there was a connection there. Oh yeah, it was definitely pretty clear. I mean, like, I think even they even mentioned it a couple times, like, you know, Orb brings us fire, Orb will bring us, you know, whatever. That's right. That's right. <laughs> what, what, I think what we know of most sort of prehistoric civilizations points to a common like mother figure goddess um at least i don't know how common having a sun god is but i found it interesting how the cavemen recognized even if they didn't worship this mother goddess they recognized the characteristic motherly phenomenon of compassion as being distinctive like its own thing even though it wasn't necessarily respected as like a central principle to be applied to other situations like it might have been if they had worshipped a mother figure goddess. And I think this ties back into what we were talking about just a minute ago with Doctor Who wanting to be around people who had a more intuitive sense of morality than he did so that they could kind of be a check on him. And now that I'm a mother and I'm like, oh my gosh, certain things that I've been trying to do my whole life come so much more easily to me. Like there's value in that. Especially because they, they do talk about I believe they do use masculine pronouns for orb. Yes. They yeah, do. The notion of orb. And so orb is this male god who gives them fire, but only to the leader and only it's, it's very capricious. Yes. It's not a very compassionate figure. And that, so they have an idea of the masculine figure being ultra compassionate and hovering over them and not with them. Right. And then their feminine figure is the old lady. I was going to say, I had also interpreted it as what they were saying to be Orb. I usually watch things with subtitles, and the version that I was watching didn't have a, a track to kind of help me follow along with the dialogue a little bit better. So I'm like, I thought that they were saying Orb, but hearing them say Orb over and over again just like made me laugh. Like, oh, yes, Orb will save us. Mm -mm. <laughs> All right, so now we'll get to their escape from the Cave of Skulls, where Susan is just randomly playing with skulls and putting them on sticks, apparently. Yeah. And it's just like, hey, look at this cool thing that I made. I was fine with that. I mean, it makes total sense. <laughs> yeah, things, things teenagers do. Yep. Yeah. And so Ian comes up with, a plan that I have no idea how this worked, but they just put four skulls on sticks, went out the back door, and the cave people went in and were just like, ah, they're flaming skulls now. What's going on? 
<laughs> I mean, it was a, it was kind of a cool visual, you it know, was. like to, to to have them kind of make these dummy ghosts yeah. or whatever. But I don't quite understand how they were able to slip away. Well, there was the back door that old mother had come in. So they slipped out through that while the cave people came in through the front. Right. I did wonder why they didn't just wait till everyone was asleep and leave. Yeah. <laughs> well, they probably had guards. I believe only the leader stays awake at night. Well, speaking of the leader, I gotta, we got to give Zah, Detective Zah credit for his investigative skills. <laughs> like, he just fair, bursts fair. in there and he's like, he is having none of it, none of these shenanigans. He sees through well, it immediately. Well, I think he believed it for a bit until one of the sticks fell down. <laughs> and he's like, wait a minute. Listen, I'll believe that they were transformed into flaming skull sticks, but not unstable flaming yeah. skull sticks. You have to draw a line somewhere, you know? Yeah. So, you know, Zaz like, okay, they're, they've run out the back. I know what happened. Let's chase after them. And her says, but the dark will hide them. And Za, suddenly becoming smart, says, with fire, it is day. Oh, and oh, that, that chase scene, man. Oh, oh yeah, when they're <laughs> basically this chase scene. They're running through the forest, which basically consists of all the actors running in place against a black backdrop while, I guess, a floor crew are out there <laughs> beating them with sticks occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> this occasional branch to the face. I love it. It was so perfect. I was like, okay, well, this is where they ran out of money. You know, it's yeah. like right here. Well, I mean, you know, with the forest... I think they just brought in some random trees from the outside and we're just like, here's a forest now. And fun story, one of those trees had a lizard in it that Carol Ann Ford found and was just like, well, this lizard's my pet now. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so, you know, but yeah, at this point, they're just beating them with sticks as they run and escape into the TARDIS. That's some top tier trivia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't good. realize that lizards lived in England. I assume that's where this was filmed for budgetary reasons, at least. Yeah. If they if they were if they had not moved to another planet, it, it would make sense that they actually just stayed exactly where they were. So they, they should still be in England. Yeah, because you know they only seemed to have moved in time. They didn't mention anything about space. There was no spaceometer. But anyway, they get back into the TARDIS. Some some would argue that moving backward in time, even if you want to end up at quote unquote the same yeah. place, still ends up moving you in space because you know the Earth is moving and the solar system yeah. is moving and stuff. Oh, pshaw! Let's yeah, not get not, all no, science no, 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 in this educational enough, show. Yeah. It's, it's not that educational. <laughs> yeah, I think not bringing me down. I think the real question here, the one, the burning question that I had was: uh, Did Zah just? I mean, I guess he observed enough during that very brief stint to recreate fire. I guess we'll just kind of have to assume that because really he only got it once he only saw them kind of messing with that fire bow for just a second so i guess that was enough for well i don't know because you know the tribe was outside rumbling a bit so who knows maybe they were in that cave for hours while ian's just like no no you idiot you just do this (laughs) you do this Ah. experience lost they could you know his his previous imagining of fire is if I rub my hands together <laughs> with a stick between them real fast, a bone. I can feel them get heating up. I can feel the heat. So I should just be able to wave that heat, wave my hands at some sticks, and the fire will go to the sticks, right? Yep. So maybe this was like 
this was all he needed to sort of, you know, uh, for it to snap into focus. Like, oh, oh, I see. It has to touch you have to just, them. Are you You have to rub me? just the sticks against each other. Oh. Montage opportunity missed is all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see, I want to see an entire life entire his like whole existence as just him at different ages rubbing his hands together over a pile of sticks i was just saying fire training montage you know it's like you know close-up shots on the fire bow and then zaw just can't do it and he's sweating it's like you know push to limit. eye of the tiger right. playing ian's making him chase chickens uh, <laughs> yeah. swallow raw eggs he still can't get the fire uh. yeah all of it all of it i'm in we and we have a flashback to his father, the original fire maker, being like, "That boy ain't right." <laughs> <laughs> yes. Also, his father is Hank Hill. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, selling they, fire it, and fire accessories. <laughs> 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 so anyway, they get back to the TARDIS, and Ian's like, "Well, have you taken us back to our own time yet?" And the Doctor's just like. I can't do that. Nah. Be reasonable. He kind of explains that the machine's not working quite properly. We don't really have all the info we need to calculate things. So you're kind of stuck with me for a while. My bad. We're just going to quantum leap through time and space forever. You know, that, that made sense. And if you, if you have to figure out how to get from one place to another, you have to know exactly where you are. And yeah. since they went somewhere kind of all higgledy-piggledy, and they didn't they know exactly where they were. They went to Eurometer Zero. Right. He said that the, the Eurometer must have been broken. So they uh, didn't know exactly when they were or where they were possible. And so they didn't have all... So he's going to have to actually land somewhere that he knows precisely before he can... This is my prediction that I'm sure will be borne out. They have to land somewhere that he knows exactly where it is and when it is before he can take off purposefully in a direction that he means to go. So they take a look on the view screen to see what's outside, and it's just a bad-looking landscape with a bunch of dead trees, and the doctor asks Susan to check the radiation. She says it's normal. They walk off to get themselves cleaned up. And our final cliffhanger shot is of the radiation meter. Was it called the radiometer or the radiation ometer? <laughs> well, did you say Geiger counter Actually, earlier. Okay. You did say Geiger counter earlier. I have in my notes, what's with that quantum Geiger counter? <laughs> we see the lever go from normal into extreme danger. And that's how our episode ends. Now, since originally the second episode or the second serial was going to be a different story than what it was, they were originally going to look outside and see an extremely futuristic landscape with this Frank Lloyd Wright style house floating in the air because that seems practical with their budget, right? But, sure. you know, so they were Nothing. going to go from the extreme past to sometime in the extreme future. Which Back would have to the been future too. Yeah. But instead we get the story that they ended up going with for the second one, The Dead Planet. So let's kind of wrap things up by just giving this story our overall rating. And for the lack of a better system right now, let's just go with thumbs up, you liked it. This episode was meh or thumbs down. So we'll start with uh, with Andy. Andy, thumbs up, meh, or thumbs down? You know, thumbs up. Why not? I feel like um, 
even in the 60s, the caveman time travel stuff was old hat. And, you know, certainly by modern standards, uh, this is kind of hilarious. But it was still well, if albeit occasionally overacted, and uh, well rendered for the time and budget. And I was pretty impressed with the uh, atmosphere. And uh, you know what? Not as racist slash sexist as expected. <laughs> so, yeah, thumbs up for me. Bay, what about you? Yeah, you know, um, going into this, I was a little bit apprehensive. Um, and I was thinking, well, this may just be meh. You know, this is um, from uh, over 50 years ago. I, I didn't know what to expect, and it pre- pleasantly surprised me. So I'm giving it a thumbs up. Uh, Park? Um, I thought I really liked it. I thought it was really enjoyable. I thought it was a lot. It was a lot less, especially the first and last episodes, were a lot faster paced and more dramatic than I expected. I've I really liked it. Definite thumbs up. Okay, and Julia? Definitely thumbs up. I, I thought that it was a lot less corny than I expected, and the characters were much much more well-rounded than I expected. Okay, and yeah, you know, the first time that I watched this, it may have been because at the time, you know, I was at home suffering from terrible tooth pain, but the first time I watched it, I would have given the first episode a, you know, solid, massive thumbs up. And the caveman stuff, kind of a meh. But watching it the second time, I really appreciated what was going on with the caveman. And I'm changing my original opinion to give it a solid thumbs up. I I liked it a lot more this time than the first time I watched it. The general consensus among fans is kind of what my first impression was. Most people would say that the first episode, solid, and it really is one of the most solid half hours of television that Doctor Who has ever produced. But most people just kind of say the caveman stuff is kind of forgettable. And I, I, after watching it the second time, I don't agree with that at all. And you guys didn't either. So I think that we could solidly say that this was one that we all ended up enjoying. No, I, I, and I agree with what you said. I think, I think it takes, it might take a a second pass or like if I hadn't been watching this to talk about it on a podcast, I don't know if I would have paid as much attention to the caveman stuff and thought about it as deeply as I did. But I think there was actually a lot to unpack there. And I think it was, I think they were really trying to say something. They were really asking questions. It was, It was not just a joke show at the very beginning. They were making real science fiction. The reaction at the time in TV publications, things like that, most of them just kind of ignored or dismissed it as an odd show that had no real built-in audience. So it was kind of ignored by the publications. And as far as that audience is concerned, the first episode only had about 4.4 million viewers. You also have to consider this episode was the very first thing that showed up on TV after 24 hours of news coverage about the Kennedy assassination. Oh, wow. Wow. And there was also a bit of a blackout at the time. So they re-aired this the next week. But still, the viewing numbers came in and they were extremely mediocre. It got between 6 and 7 million viewers And it was no more than the number 61 program during the week at any point during this first serial. You know, the BBC took a look at the numbers and there was kind of a sentiment that was against this show. And a lot of those people who, 
you know, were really against Doctor Who and against Sidney Newman, took a look at the numbers, said, you know, this show, it's too expensive to produce. It's stretching our facilities too thin. So, you know, we have this contracted for a 13-episode option, and we could pick it up after that. We're not going to pick the show up. We're just going to let it run out. It's 13 episodes, and then it's done. So originally, it was going to be canceled. And Verity Lambert, she kind of worked some magic. She convinced them that they had kind of committed to about 18 episodes, so it kind of needed to run a little bit longer. And the BBC decided to hold off for a final decision, not expecting anything to change while Verity Lambert was hoping for a miracle. So we'll see what that miracle was next time. While it wasn't the most viewed show, it definitely had some fans right from the beginning. One notable fan was future Dr. Colin Baker. He was a law student at the time and he describes just, you know, walking in, people are there watching this show on television, and he just stood in the doorway, transfixed for the next half hour, from the moment the music started playing to the moment the episode ended. And he fell in love with the show right away. A couple years later, he gave up studying law, went into acting, and while I don't know if this is true or not, my real-life headcanon says that Doctor Who inspired that. So next time, we'll move on to the dead planet, where we'll have two new guest stars. So I'd like to thank Park and Julia for joining us for this one. Happy to come along. Yeah, it's great fun. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks. And Julia, and especially thanks to you for braving the laryngitis and the extreme illness to be here with us today. I'm so glad my voice recovered just enough. (laughs) Not too terrible to listen to, and I'll sound different next time. So if you want to send us an email, you can email us at drwhosthat at gmail.com. That's all one word, doctor spelt out. You could Twitter us. What's what's the word for Twitter? Tweet? Tweet. tweet. You could tweet, tweet at... Yeah, I, I don't get this modern technology stuff. You could use tweet... Use the tweetometer. <laughs> yes, you could use the tweetometer at us. Orb come and make tweets <laughs> for us. Show me how to make tweets. We, tweet from his fingers. We are... Sean will make tweets yes. for us. <laughs> we are... It's a whole, a whole community of packlids. <laughs> We'll make our tweet go. We are at dr underscore who's underscore that. And we also have a Facebook group that you could join. So I guess I would like to thank you for listening and say farewell, Andy Bay. Thank you, everyone. It's been a pleasure. And tune in next time. See you next time. Thanks so much. And As a closing, I just want to say a line from the show that I think kind of sums up the philosophy of Doctor Who moving forward. Remember, fear makes companions of us all. It is with all of us and always will be, just like that other sensation that lives with it. Hope. Hope.